the past century, there was a, a psychologist, psychoanalytical thinker. His name was uh, Bosch. He created what's called Boschian psychology. The uh, technicalities of Boschian psychology are suspect or lost not only to me, but maybe to some of you. But in broad swaths, we can see and identify the ideas of Boschian psychology in our everyday life by some simple expressions that we use. For example, when people are angry, we used to say that I'm seeing red. People of a certain generation will be familiar with that. An expression also of someone being yellow. The term being yellow, for those once again of a different generation, some of you are even nodding, I'd like to note for the recording. The term being yellow is a reflection of someone being cowardly. Why? Because cowardice was most closely linked with bile coming from the liver. A greater explanation of this can be found in a wonderful book written by a professor of uh, surgery from Yale University called Sherwin Newland, called The Mysteries of the Body. He goes and identifies each of the different organs and the historical meaningfulness that people put to the organs long before science said that this is what the organ actually does. So people long assumed that the heart was the source of emotion long before we actually figured out, in addition to the heart does pumping and other things. So Boschian psychology basically argues that when you're angry, you see an angry world. Everything makes you angry and everything seems angry. And so in large part, what it's a reflection of is that the way we are is a reflection of also how we see the world. I say this because, as Abe shared with me about 10 minutes ago, there is a collective grief that has gripped the Jewish community and world, combined with also a collective fear that has gripped the Jewish world. And so we are seeing the world both through grief and fear and anger, lots of conflicting emotions, apparently conflicting emotions, run through us all at the same time which of course is a caution. And the caution is to be careful with what we would consider to be lessons or conclusions for what is taking place over the past near month. I'm reminded of this because uh, just a month ago was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Of course, there were great connections to be made, not the least of which is the element of military surprise. And only now, 50 years after the Yom Kippur War, was there a, a raft of books that have come out with surprising conclusions about things that were to be learned now 50 years after the fact about the Yom Kippur War. And so what I'm saying to you is, is that while some people are rushing to quick, brash conclusions about things that we're supposed to understand and learn over what took place a month ago, I would say to you, catch your breath. That said, there are some old friends that are visiting us, and we know them well. And we don't need to wait another month or another year or 50 years to be able to know them and to be able to figure out what lessons we are to take from them. And so in this morning, I wanted to take a little bit of time to look at those old friends, I say it sarcastically, to help us identify and understand what kind of truths we need to speak to them. 
The French philosopher who lived in the 19th century, Andre Gide, once said, asking the question, why do we keep repeating the same things over and over again? In other words, if something is truthful, it should be enough to say it once. Why do you have to keep repeating it over and over again? And Gide says the reason why we repeat truths is because people forget them. And so over the course of the past month and certainly the past year and over and over again, you hear these common things being said. And it is important for us to repeat these truths over and over again, not simply because people forget them, yes, they do, but also because we need to be re-educated and rearmed in understanding how when we hear these things, how to respond to them and how we should feel about them. So here are some of the things you hear over and over again. Number one, that Israel is an apartheid state. It's a lie. An apartheid, an apartheid state, by legal definition, is when you have a minority, either a religious or a racial minority, that enacts a system of laws to prevent the majority from having any control over the destiny of the society. These laws and systems are meant to prevent them, the majority, from voting, participating in political life, and taking control of institutions. The classic example of apartheid was Afrikaans white South Africa. The Afrikaners, the descendants of the Dutch colonialists who went to South Africa in the 1800s were and always had been a distinct minority from the black majority. And they initiated and instituted series of laws to prevent the majority of whom are racially black from participating in the life of the country, even going so far on their passports and their, on their identification papers of listing people with the letter K. The letter K in Afrikaans is kafir, which means someone who is black, like the word coffee, kafir. And this is a way of legally designating people as being black or white. It should be noted as well, I know this because I served in the army with people from, from South Africa, they told me these things, that if, for example, if there was a South African, a black South African who had success in the Olympics on his identification papers or hers, they were listed as honorary whites. That is an apartheid. Why is it a lie regarding Israel? Because the majority of the people who live in Israel are Jews. And the minorities in Israel are permitted to vote, go to universities, have freedom of movement, and are able to have jobs wherever they want. There's someone sitting on the Supreme Court, there's a justice who's an Israeli Arab. There are political parties representing Israeli Arabs. And this is not to say that Israel is a perfect society. There is none. Not the least of which is this country that we're living in. The conceit of Canadian politicians, while there are tens of thousands of indigenous Canadians who don't have access to drinking clean water, 
to lecture other people about what is right and just? Shame. Look in your own home first. So Israel is not an apartheid country. And it is not a perfect country either. There are demons to be tackled there as there are in every society because societies are messy places. That there is a genocide, number two, that there is a genocide taking place in Israel. When the Israelis took control of Gaza in 1967, it should be noted that long before the Israeli army got to Gaza in 1967, the Egyptian army had already left it which should have been a clear warning to the Israelis. But there were 600,000 Palestinians living in Gaza in 1967. Today, there are approximately 2.2 and 2.3 million. In the West Bank, the, um, the multiplicities are similar, that over from 1967 and onwards, the Palestinian populations both in Gaza and in the West Bank have increased roughly 220-something percent. I am not a math major, okay? I, am, I studied religious studies and philosophy in school. But I can put a little bit of math together to figure out that genocides generally result in a reduction in the number of people living in a country. Witness the fact that in 1939, prior to the Second World War, there were three, approximately three million Jews living in Poland. By the end of the war, there were under 300,000 Polish Jews left. That's a genocide. Now, you could label and claim the Israeli presence in both the West Bank and Gaza by any number of terms, both somewhat flattering, unflattering, and across the entire spectrum. But the word genocide is a lie. It's a lie. There are people who also, number three, refer to Israel as a colonialist enterprise. A colonialist enterprise. It should be noted that a colonialist enterprise requires, in technical political philosophy language, it requires a metropole. In simple language, a metropole is a country that sends people over to another place to rob it of its resources and send it back to the benefit of the empire. Classic example, the British in India. They set up a colonial enterprise for the benefit of the tea, which they sent back to the empire, exploiting the locals to uh, harvest and produce the tea at dirt cheap prices that the empire was able then to benefit from. I have been to Israel many, many times in my life. And one of the most outstanding features of Israel is, is that there are no natural resources. There is no water there. There is no gold. You know, the old joke is that uh, when God let the Israelites through the desert, he couldn't have sent them to a place where there was oil. There are no resources there. So you cannot call it a colonialist enterprise. And not only that, there is no empire directing it. 
it has its own government. There are direct elections there. The very idea that it is colonialist is a lie. If you've ever gone to the, uh, to the Perez Center, the Peace Center in, uh, in Yafo, in Tel Aviv Yafo, I went with AB uh, in 2019. Uh, there is a beautiful plaque inside the museum quoting Shimon Perez. And it says that the only resource that the Israelis ever realized they had was Hayitron and Noshut. It was the resource of human beings. That's the resource we have. The other lies that we often hear throughout uh, the media are worthy, of course, of being called out and identified. But these three great lies of genocide, apartheid, and colonialism are recurring lies that we hear over and over again, and they are used to create an atmosphere and conversation of demagoguery about Israel and those people who are associated with and support the state of Israel. And so you should know how, when you hear these things in clear language, why they are not true and why they are reprehensible lies that are simply meant to hurt, offend, mitigate, and damage the conversation you have about Israel. And the last item being, the last friend that we need to talk down to is the argument that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. I'll put it to you simply. If anti-Zionism was not anti-Semitism, if the people who were not opposed to the state of Israel were not, in fact, anti-Semitic, why then do we need armed guards in front of this congregation? Why do we need police command centers in front of our Jewish schools? Why then are people driving through Jewish neighborhoods waving Palestinian flags and screaming at Jewish children who were returning from their schools. Why then am I getting phone calls from parents and students in universities telling me that they, the children, the students, will not wear a Magin David or any Jewish symbol? How they're getting hate mail sent via Instagram by their quad mates and other students. Why then? One idea that we're supposed to take from this, and there's a painful lesson that comes by way of Jewish tradition. The fact of the matter is we well understand that when it comes to the Jews, facts are not important because people have never needed facts to wage horrible conversations and damaging discussions about Jews. Facts didn't matter when it came time to oppressing and murdering Jews. This difficult lesson comes by way of the Torah portion for this morning, an echo of which, of which I can say, is seen later again, not only the life of Abraham and Isaac that we see this morning, but also a little bit later in the life of Yaakov, of Jacob as well. There are two great actors that play out in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is seen replete throughout the book of Genesis. This morning in the Torah reading, these two great actors are front and center. And once again, we will see them in the life of Jacob. 
This morning we hear about the presence of angels and the presence of human beings. The angels come by way of being peace and greetings. In the case of Jacob, in the case of Jacob, Jacob wrestles with an angel. But in the case of both this morning and in Jacob, they're never afraid of the angels. Jacob never wanders in fear about the angels. Abraham is never afraid of the angels that come to his tent. But in this morning's Torah reading, Isaac and Abraham, as he's called by God to sacrifice his son, there is reason to be afraid of a human being. When Jacob needs to confront Esau, he is shaking in fear. Jewish tradition is telling us that while in the ancient world, in the non-Jewish religious world of the ancient world, that the thing that people feared more than else were the gods. But Jewish tradition is telling us we have nothing to fear from God because God is compassionate, but we have much to fear of other human beings, which is a truth, a hard truth, that has been repeated over and over again in the story of the Jewish people. Of God, we have nothing to fear. Of humans, much. As of today, there are nearly 240 people, Jews, who are captive and being held in Gaza. On their, this is already their 26th day. As of last night, there are young children and women and other family members who have spent 25 nights in Gaza without their homes and without their families. They know that there is much to be afraid of of other human beings. This they know. And often the debate of whether or not what is true or not true, of what is just and not just, perhaps one metric, one measurement is best used. And that would be this. When you're speaking to friends or family, or even if you have an eternal conversation with yourself as you're driving in the car and you're listening to the news, repeat itself over and over again. Ask yourself this one metric. If both sides were to put down their weapons, if both sides were, were to put down their weapons, who would be in most danger if one of the sides picked their weapons up again? In the metric, the long-standing metric of this is, is that we were attacked. We didn't attack. If we put down our weapons, we will be murdered. If they put down their weapons, there will be peace. Shabbat shalom.